Luke 11, 37 through 52. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You, sh you should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which people walk all over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you've built their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill, and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world from the blood of Albelto, the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for all of it. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who are entering. This is the word of God. Welcome, everybody. <laughs> You're like, I thought we were talking about parties. Technically, that's true. Yeah, technically, that's true. Uh, my name is Johnny. I'm one of the pastors here. As Heather said, if you're new, it is so good to have you with us. We are currently in a series entitled Party Crasher. And what we're doing is we are exploring 10 different party stories from the book of Luke that Jesus attends. So these are actual parties, real parties that Jesus shows up to throughout the gospel of Luke. And they're all different kinds. They all take place in different moments and different situations. Sometimes Jesus is showing up at someone's house to celebrate and have a meal with them. Sometimes a Pharisee is inviting Jesus over to question them or to question him and to interrogate him and his faith and his followers. And sometimes Jesus is throwing his own meal, like he does at the Last Supper or when he feeds the 5,000. So we have all sorts of different actual parties that show up throughout the book of Luke, and what we are discovering is that parties are an essential component to the work and life of Jesus. We don't always see it that way, and I, I think sometimes we can treat Jesus like he's a bit of like a sanctimonious other, like we put him in this like religious weirdo category, but Jesus loved to party. This is just the thing that we, if maybe the big idea of this whole series is Jesus really liked to party. And parties are essential to the work and life of Jesus. And I've read this quote a few different times, but I think it is worth saying again. This is from New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. He says, why does Jesus like to party? Why does he talk about parties? Why does he go to parties so much? And N.T. Wright says this, in telling party stories, Jesus is explaining and vindicating his own practice 
of eating with sinners. His celebratory meals are the equivalent in real life of parties in his story. What is more, Jesus is claiming that when he does all of this, God is doing it. Jesus' parties reveal to us what God is like. When Jesus eats with those who have been ostracized from society, those who've been pushed to the margins, Jesus is showing us what God is like. And when Jesus throws parties for everyone and includes the 5,000 to his table, he's like, this is what our God is like. And when Jesus shows up in religious spaces and confronts Pharisees or scribes or legal experts, he is showing us what God is like. Tables and meals and parties that Jesus attends are glimpses and images into the very heart of our God. So far throughout the series, we have looked at four different parties. We started with Jesus attending a party at the home of a tax collector named Levi. Then we looked at Jesus at the home of Simon the Pharisee. Then we looked at a Jesus is hosting it himself by breaking bread and fishes and feeding 5,000. And then last week, Heather led us through the party at Mary and Martha's home, where Jesus challenges and upends cultural norms and customs to celebrate two wonderful women. Today, we are moving into a new party that, based on the reading, it does not sound like a very fun party. And this party takes place in Luke chapter 11. And again, Jesus is in the home of a Pharisee. A Pharisee is a religious leader in ancient Israel. And like the previous story where Jesus is with a religious leader, Jesus has some challenging words to offer. But this moment is a bit different than the previous story with a religious leader. And I think of all the parties that Jesus has attended so far, this is the one that might qualify the most as like a genuine party-crashing kind of moment. Jesus is invited into this person's home, and then he just unleashes like a torrent of very sharp words. And I know we read this like it's the Bible, but can you just put your head in the party for a moment and be like, who is this guy? Jesus is invited to this home and goes absolutely off. And we'll get into that in a moment, the things that he says, and most importantly, why he says them. But before we do, there's just something I want to highlight and illustrate. In verse 37 of this passage, it says that while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee came to him and invited Jesus to share a meal with him. So Jesus went and took his place at the table Before we get to the harsh words, before we get to the critiques, before we get to the reflections, whatever is happening in this passage, I just think this is worth remembering, that Jesus is invited to the party at a Pharisee's home, and Jesus goes to it. We talk a lot about the conflict and the tension that exists between religious leaders and Jesus, between the Pharisees and the scribes and Jesus. But what I do not want us to miss is that Jesus keeps showing up in their lives. Jesus keeps showing up in the lives of Pharisees and religious leaders. He keeps getting invited to their parties, and he keeps pursuing relationship with them because Jesus wants them at the table. 
Jesus wants to be in relationship with them. Like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus leaves the party, goes to the field in search of this one too. And I think it is really important to begin with that fact because we are about to see strong words, but the purpose of those strong words is inclusion, not exclusion. And if Jesus did not want them to be included, he could just stop going to those parties. He could say all these same things like out in the world. People would probably love him for it, but instead Jesus shows up at their parties and says it to them, which is wild. I can barely tell somebody if I don't like their food. (laughs) Jesus keeps showing up in their lives. He keeps going to their parties. He keeps entering into relationship with them. And I think that is such good news because if I am honest, I am a Pharisee. I want to see myself as like an outcast and a rebel. But look, I mean, look at me. Look where I am. (laughs) <laughs> I'm the pastor of a church. I, like, I don't know. It doesn't get less rebellious than that. I am a Pharisee. I have made religiously accurate decisions. I have like, kept my life in line with the things that I think God wants. I care about living holy and righteously, as no rebel has ever said before. I, like, <laughs> I am a Pharisee. But the truth is, if you're in this room, you probably are too. As my favorite Bible scholar, Matthew McConaughey, says, all Pharisees once prodigal. He really said that. That's true. (laughs) And I think that is just true of so many of us. We are in this room for for right reasons. Like, we're in this room because we care. We're in this room because we care about our faith. We're in this room because we like knowing about Jesus or we like talking about the Bible. We're in this room because words like righteous and holy don't turn us off, but they actually get us. And that's what the Pharisees want. It is easy to critique them, villainize them. It is easy to make them so other that we don't read ourselves into their story. But the truth is that for most of us, they are the characters we relate to most. They are nice people who want nice things. That's why I think it's such good news that Jesus continues to show up in their lives because what it means is that Jesus continues to show up in my life and that Jesus will continue to show up in your life. And that Jesus will continue to offer sometimes challenging words That Jesus will sometimes offer words that are confrontational, but those confrontational words are always about challenging us in love so that we might be included, not excluded. So that we might find a place at the table where we belong with our siblings, not above our siblings, but with our siblings in the unity that Christ is establishing that's not always easy because sometimes a confrontation with love is a confrontation with ourself. But that is why Jesus is at this party and it is what I think he is offering us today. So with that said, that Jesus enters this space to be with, to include, not to exclude. Let's look at what happens. So it says Jesus goes to this party and then verse 38, we get the strangest like inciting incident for what happens. 
It says, A Pharisee saw that Jesus did not ritually purify his hands by washing them before the meal. And so he was surprised. This moment, I was trying to find some kind of like cultural referent for this moment. It might kind of be like if you were in a really traditional religious setting and you didn't say grace before a meal. Right? It's like, it's not about hygiene in that moment, but it is about religion and it is about ritual and it is about performance. And that might be a little startling in a traditional setting, but isn't that big of a deal. And it says the Pharisee is surprised. That's all it says. I looked to see if that word meant more than surprised. It doesn't. It just means he was surprised. So the Pharisee sees it, Jesus doesn't wash his hands, and he's like, huh, that's weird. But something about that comment, Jesus loses his mind over. <laughs> I don't know what's that. It just says he was surprised. It's like, how do you wash his hands? And Jesus is like, I don't wash my hands, you filthy animal. Because look, <laughs> look at what happens next. Something is triggered in Jesus, and he absolutely go off. He says, the Lord said to this Pharisee, who was, again, surprised, now you, Pharisee, clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your insides are stuffed with greed and wickedness. It's such a wild thing to say after a guy's like, did you just wash his hands? And he's like, you want to wash your hands? You're dead inside. (laughs) But something is like really off with Jesus in this moment because he doesn't just stop there. He just keeps going. It's like something has triggered in Jesus and he is just going to get all of it out. So he says, you're stuffed with greed and wickedness. And then he just keeps, calls them foolish people. He said, didn't the one who made the outside also make the inside? Therefore, give to those in need and the core of you will be clean. He says, how terrible for you Pharisees. You give a tenth of your stuff while neglecting justice and love. He goes on to say, how terrible for you Pharisees. You love prominent seats at the synagogue and respectful greetings in the marketplace. This is, this is a doozy. But you are unmarked graves that people walk over without even recognizing. Jesus is on just an absolute tear. And then in verse 45, we get this moment that I absolutely love. One of the legal experts who's at the dinner party with Jesus is like, hey, teacher, just so you know, when you say these things, you hurt my feelings too. <laughs> and Jesus turns to him and he's like, yeah, I bet I do, because how terrible for you, legal experts. You load people down with impossible burdens that you refuse to lift a single finger to help. The whole dinner is like this. It just, it just keeps going. Like the whole meal is like this. And it almost feels like a bit random. Like if you're like reading through all these things, you're like, Jesus, like, is this just your burn diary that you just brought out and read to everybody here? Like what is going on? But we actually see this moment where Jesus leaves the dinner and he kind of, he's still going. Like he's still so mad about this moment that he leaves the dinner and he continues to riff to his disciples. And he says something that I think themes everything together that we've just heard. So he leaves the dinner He's fired up, and he says in 12 verse 1, Jesus begins to speak to his disciples. He says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. I mean the mismatch between their hearts and their lives. All the criticisms that Jesus has offered throughout this moment, this like tear that he has been on with them, with the religious leaders, all comes to this moment. 
He says their hearts and their lives are not aligned. They are mismatched. The same moment is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, and in that moment, Jesus says they honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. So you do the right things, the outside of your life is right, you do religious practice, you tithe, you give, whatever, you get it right, but in here, something is so misaligned, so misoriented, so distant that actually the deeper, more important issues here you have neglected. This is such a profound criticism of these leaders. Because their whole job, literally their entire existence, is about teaching people how to be properly oriented towards God. That's the whole game. They study the law, the Old Testament Torah. They study it, they memorize it, they become legal experts in it. They know all 613 commands by heart. And they are there in Israel's life to interpret those things, to apply those things, and to guide people they believe is like proper, oriented life with God. So that people's hearts, people's minds, people's bodies, everything would be properly oriented towards God. And it's not arbitrary. I think sometimes when we look at the religious leaders, it feels so arbitrary. You're like, why do you care about these things? Why are you being so petty? Why are you surprised that Jesus washed his hands? It's fair criticisms, but the Pharisees believe that if they can just help Israel live aligned, then people will be free. They're an occupied nation, conquered by Rome. And he's like, if we just get people to live free or to live the law, then we will be free. Like, this is the outcomes of this moment. So it's not arbitrary. It's deeply rooted in conviction and hope. Pharisees have dedicated themselves to something, and they believe it's good and right and true. And so when Jesus is like, hey, you've missed it, he is criticizing the very heart of their identity, the very foundation of their vocation, the very essence of their existence in this communal space. But that is exactly what Jesus is doing. He looks at the religious leaders and he says, you have missed the point. It's great that you tithe. It's great that you give. It's great that you go to synagogue, but you have missed the whole purpose of this thing. And this is a big part of Jesus' teachings, Jesus' rhythms, Jesus' work in the world. All throughout his ministry, you'll see him continue to offer this kind of challenge to people. And it revolves often around helping people understand the purpose or the point of religious practice the law, what it looks like to follow God. Maybe the most famous example of this comes in Matthew 22, verse 36, which historically, narratively, is like just a few moments before this dinner party happens. In this moment in Matthew 22, you probably know it, a religious leader comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You must love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the law and all the prophets
is depend on these two commands. Jesus takes the 613 commands of the Old Testament. He says, if you really want to understand what they're for, what they're doing, what the purpose is, what the point is, it is to love God and love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's a good summary of these things. In that moment, he's trying to restore how people think about this whole thing, how they think about the Old Testament faith and how they think about the law. But Jesus will even go further than this near the end of his ministry. At the Last Supper with his disciples, and Heather read this one last week, in John 13, verse 34, Jesus will say this, I give you a new commandment. Love one another just as I have loved you. So you also must love one another. This is how everyone will know that you are my disciples, when you love each other. Jesus says the heart of this thing, the purpose of the law, of religious practice, of your external orientation, all of it was about love. It was about knowing that you have been loved and in response, loving And so in this moment, Jesus is looking at the religious leaders, and he's like, you had one job. It's to help people know that they were loved and to extend that love well. But you have forgotten the purpose and the point. And he keeps using this phrase that I, I think is really interesting. He keeps saying how terrible it is for you. How terrible it is for you. And there's like a dual meaning to that because, one, it's terrible because you have excluded others. You've hurt others. You have stopped others from entering into the relationship and proximity of your space. But it is also terrible for you because you have excluded yourself. That's the last thing that Jesus says to the religious scribes. He's like, you had the keys of knowledge, you took them, but you did not enter the kingdom, and you also didn't let anybody else enter in. How terrible for you. You've excluded yourself along with everyone else. Like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, you are outside the party refusing to come in, but the invitation was there. So Jesus challenges them to remember the purpose of their work. In this moment, I was thinking, like, what do we do with this? Like, here's these sharp words that Jesus offers, and I was like, what do we do with this? But it reminds me of another passage and I've not been able to shake this connection between these two moments. This is a famous moment. You'll probably remember it. In the letter referred to by James, written by James, James 127, we get this really beautiful statement where the writer says this, True devotion, the kind that is pure and faultless before God the Father, is this, to care for the orphan and the widows in their difficulties and to keep the world from contaminating us. James is saying something very similar to what Jesus says. The kind of worship, the kind of devotion that God loves is a kind that moves outward, a kind that cares for people, a kind that extends itself for others, a kind that is preoccupied with justice and service and care. But James does something really interesting right before this verse. He says, true worship, true devotion, the kind that God loves is this— But then right before this moment, he says this thing. He says, you must be doers of the word and not only hearers who mislead themselves. 
Those who hear but don't do the word are like those who look at their faces in a mirror. They look at themselves, they walk away, and immediately they forget what they were like. But there are those who study the perfect law, the law of freedom, and they continue to do it. They don't listen and then forget, but they put into practice in their lives, and they will be blessed in whatever they do. So you get this moment, doers of the word versus hearers. You're like, yeah, that makes sense. That feels aligned. But then there's this like, weird little allegory about a mirror in the middle of this moment. This story about self-reflection and looking at yourself and not forgetting. What I think is interesting is that James connects this little mirror story to having a faith that moves outward. And here's the connection. The doers of the word, people who have a faith that moves outward in love, are people who see themselves and remember who they are. James connects faith that moves outward with a good look at ourselves, with reflection and honesty. There is a kind of humility and freedom that comes when we are honest with ourselves, when we wrestle with ourselves, when we reflect on what is actually happening in ourselves, when we receive forgiveness, there is a kind of humility and freedom that is produced. And the reason this moment keeps coming up to me is because I think what's happening when Jesus lists these woes is he's sort of like holding a mirror up to the Pharisees and being like, look at yourself. Look at yourself. Do you not see what you're doing to the people around you? Do you not see how you know this stuff, but it just keeps heaping burdens on you and others? Look at yourself. Wrestle with what is actually happening and experience freedom and love that would lead to an expression of faith that is for others. I was thinking about this, um, and it reminded me of uh, just my own life. There was a like about a month ago, Tori and I got in a bit of a fight. Uh, and fight's actually not a good word to describe it. I was a huge jerk, and she was really kind. So I don't know if you described that as a fight. Uh, we just had like a, we'd had this month. I'm going to try to justify myself to you. We had this month, right? And it was good, and it was full, and it was busy. But I have this tendency, a pattern in my life, that um, I say yes to basically everything, and then like three weeks into it, really resent you because I said yes. I don't know if anybody else is like this. Like I, I take on things, I really believe that I can do it. Like I'm like, yeah, I can do this. I'll cook for these things and I'll show up at these things. And I'll write this thing and I'll be at your wedding, whatever. I'm there, I'm happy. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. <laughs> and then like three weeks in, I can start to feel this like bitterness and resentment begin to bubble in me. And I start to feel like I've been like overlooked. Like I'm working hard and everybody else is partying. And you're like, well, you did say yes to this. I don't know what you want. And I could feel this happening in me. And Tori and I had like kind of come to the end of a month. And I was like, should have been smooth sailing from this moment to the end. But that had been happening in me, festering in me too long. And I asked Tori one morning, I was like, hey, can you help me put something in the truck. And she was like, yeah, totally, let me put some shoes on. That is not what my brain heard. 
Something in me snapped, not in the way that Jesus snaps, in like a bad way. And what I heard is, you're not that important. (laughs) I'll get there when I get there. That is not what she said. I think that's important to say. She was like, let me put some shoes on because she wasn't wearing them. I didn't say anything uh, because I'm a grown-up, so I just let it fester. (laughs) She put her shoes on. She helped me load the truck up. I put it in the back, and then I just unloaded on her. And I said things that I should not have said about how selfless I am, about how hard I'd been working on all of her things, and about how she never helps me with anything. Those are lies. an important thing to say. And Tori responded in such an amazing way. She held strong boundaries. She did not coddle me. I think this is important to say. But she was kind. And she was like, Johnny, this is not the first time we've had this fight. You have a pattern of doing these things. You say yes to a lot, you begin to resent me, then you do this. And it was like this moment, very profoundly, where a mirror was held up so that I could see myself, the harm that I had done, the things that I had said, the resentment that I was feeling. It was held up to me, not to exclude me, not to shame me, but to call me into deeper relationships into reconciliation, into inclusion and a place at the table. And when she held that mirror up, there was choices for me to make. You can respond in aggression and resentment and more, or you can receive the invitation to be called into relationship, to find yourself at the table where you are welcomed and loved and yourself has been confronted. I think this is exactly what's happening in Luke chapter 11. Jesus keeps showing up at these parties. He keeps entering into relationship with the religious leaders because he wants them at the table. He wants to be in relationship with them. But they have worked themselves into resentment and into bitterness and into anger, and they are excluding others and themselves from the table. And so Jesus holds up a mirror. A moment for them to reflect with their own selves. To see who they are, what they are. To receive grace. To let that down. And to come and join him at the table. And just as Jesus does that with the religious leaders in this moment... Jesus does the same thing for us. Confronts us sometimes in love, but always as an invitation into inclusion. This week I was meeting um, with some pastors, and we always begin with like a spiritual practice, which confession is always when I check my email. Um, (laughs) But this moment was led by Uh, it was like an ordained Anglican rector with a Scottish accent. So I had trouble not paying attention. And the practice this week was confession. And it was the same prayer that we all said together at the middle of this service. 
But the Anglican rector read further into the Book of Common Prayer and in this moment than I had read before. And the idea of this moment in the confession is that you would say it, and then there would be a moment of forgiveness, an absolution, like a confirmation that grace has been given to you. And the priest or the rector would offer that to you. And the moment would go like this, this kind of like liturgy of confession. The priest or the rector would say, the Lord has put away all your sins, to which the person who is confessing would say, thanks be to God. And this is the part that I... I've been thinking about a lot. Then the priest or the rector would conclude by saying, go in peace and pray for me, a sinner. And I can't stop thinking about that line in light of this passage and in light of James and in light of all the things that we have talked about. Is that every time this religious leader, this rector, priest, whatever, says you are forgiven, they are then reminded of their own shared humanity their own shared place in the story of grace, their own shared connection in the story of the gospel. You are a sinner too, religious leader. You don't stand above or beyond. No, no, this is a thing we do together in mutuality and in community. And I just love that reminder for myself. Someone who is prone to be a Pharisee. The good news that Jesus offers to everyone else is also offered to me, but it is also offered to me. And sometimes that is a challenging and difficult thing to receive. That I'm loved and that I'm welcomed and that I'm wanted at the table and all that other stuff that I've put a lot of stock in, it's mostly just other stuff. And that's the wrestle confrontation with my own self to receive the grace that is offered to me. This is what Jesus is challenging the religious leaders to do. I think it is what Jesus is challenging us to do. To get humble in our shared reception of grace and forgiveness. To see ourselves as a part of the table, not above it or removed from it. But to see us all, it's all recipients of this good news story. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your words today. They've been just like rattling in my brain all week as a challenge to me. It was a confrontation with myself. Not because you want to exclude me or shame me, but because you actually want to include me. But my exclusion of others has to stop. The burdens I put on myself and others has to stop. So again, I guess I pray today that you would restore in us the purpose of this practice, the purpose of our faith, which is and always has been to receive your love and extend it. Would you confront us with that good news story, help it to get into us, into our very bones, so that we would uproot all the stories that tell us different. And God, would we know ourselves as invited to this table where we can confess and forgive and receive forgiveness and go a people of deep humility, freed to love well. So we pray these things in your name. Amen.